Well, good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, let's open up once again to the book of 1 Samuel. And this morning, we are going to look at all of chapter 9, or most of it, and then a little bit into chapter 10. If you're just joining us this week, what we've been watching over the past couple of weeks, progression-wise in the text, we've gotten to the place in the book where previously in chapter 8, the people of God were crying out for God to deliver them, to give them a king like all the other nations around them. And then we ended with God telling Samuel to give the people what they asked for. And so the transition of the narrative begins to take shape and begins to take place in chapter 9. First Samuel, if you just broke it up into sections, chapters 1 through 8 would be one section. And then at chapter 9, this major shift all the way through the end of the chapter, 30 some odd verses later, uh, makes a transition in themes as we begin to talk and look at the apostle, or not the apostle Paul, but King Saul rather. Well, today is uh, Father's Day, and we're going to speak more to that here in just a few moments. Um, but I want to be, be remiss. I hate that these two holidays uh, fall so closely to each other because they often get missed and sort of get woven into. But we just sing a song about God's faithfulness and being faithful to us. Even when we are unfaithful or the world around us is unfaithful, God is still faithful to his people over and over and over and over again. But there are times in our lives where we may perhaps believe it in our head that God is faithful, but we don't experientially see that and feel it and understand it. We believe God, according to his word, is faithful. And we're longing and we're praying for God to show himself to be faithful in the midst of circumstances. And so often that is so difficult to do and hard to rest in, especially when the circumstances are extremely difficult. You know, there was a group of men and women who prior to June 19th, on June 18th, 1865, probably had a hard time believing in God's faithfulness. Some of these men and women were born into literally not a bondage of slavery, but literally born into being slaves. And that's all they knew and all they ever knew. And so they would work these plantations and these farms and they were owned and possessed and they were just simply property of, of other men. We believe as Christians that we ought to repudiate that with the strongest sense and the harshest of criticisms because no man has the right to own another man, another image bearer made in the image of God, that it is wrong and evil and immoral, and we will always stand against that institution. But in 1865, on June the 19th, a major general from the Union Army finally made his way all the way down to Texas into the city known as Galveston. And this general's mission was basically going around to other parts of, of southern territory and reading the Emancipation Proclamation, proclaiming that all slaves were hereby freed. And one of the things that happened towards the end of the Civil War, particularly after Appomattox and Lee had surrendered, there were still groups of individuals within the Confederacy that migrated to Texas because we were a little bit looser in our laws and in our regulations, and we lived sort of as separatists. And so this group of separatists found themselves all the way down in Galveston where they could continue to own slaves. And this general showed up and he read the emancipation and he, he proclaimed that these slaves had been set free and they were no longer slaves. 
And all of a sudden, the, the protection or the authority that was given to them, that, that it was underneath as, as slaves and in bondage, literally in chains to, to these masters, now they could freely understand that God was faithful and true to set them free from the bondage of, of what they had experienced so that they could live rightly, not under the authority of an earthly master, but under the authority of a heavenly master. And so they embrace that and they walk with that. But here in our text today, we, we have something taking place that's a little bit opposite of that. You see, it's one thing to be freed from slavery and from bondage and then to walk under the authority of God's word. It's another thing to live under that authority for a little while and then to decide this, that I no longer, as a person made in the image of God, created in his image, I no longer want to submit to that authority. And this is what we have the people of Israel doing in 1 Samuel 8 and chapter 9. They are beginning to distance themselves from the authority that God has. And God's posture all along throughout the book of Judges and leading up to this point with Samuel the prophet there, God would just simply say, hey, listen, trust me, lean into me, seek me, ask me, consult with me, pray to me, ask for wisdom from me, and I will guide you and I will protect you from your enemies, but do not get out of step with me. And as they began to get out of step with him, in this cycle of what we saw in the book of Judges when we read it, they began to do right in their own eyes, and it was this downward spiral further and further away from the Lord our God until they began to do only what was right. And so they began to ask for a king. And so we ended chapter 8 with God telling Samuel, give them what they want. And so we pick up in chapter 9. Now scholars are not, uh, there's no consensus on how long or what period of time took place between the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of 9. But there was a little bit of time that took place. And I want you to read with me, beginning in verse 1, where the text says this. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, and he was a man of wealth. He was a man of means. He was a man that had things at his disposal. And it says that he had a son whose name was Saul. That name Saul means something. It's actually a, a noun that was a derivative of a Hebrew verb that most literally means the one who has been asked for and requested. And so God, in his sense of irony, in a sense of humor, the people asking for a king to rule over them, like all the other nations, asking him for one, God most literally begins the process of giving them one whose literal name is the one that you asked for. This man, Saul, was described as a handsome young man. For there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. For his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He was a good-looking guy. One scholar said this, that if there was a Mr. Universe competition during this time or a Mr. Israel, Saul would have been the one that would have competed and he would have dominated the competition. Much better looking than Matt Getty or Donald Jackson that puts them to just utter shame. Certainly better looking than Carvin and, and Mike Peterson. We know these things to be true. And he was handsome and and good looking, and his shoulders were broad, and he was taller than everyone. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, typically when God is describing the stature of his enemies, he'll describe them with these physical descriptions. They were a tall people or a large 
people. They were a a many people. But in no other instance in the Old Testament does God describe the physical appearance of his anointed one in favorable terms. This is the only instance where he begins to talk to make a contrast. And he begins to mirror and really foreshadow this idea that what the people of God were wanting in this moment were simply mere external requests and they wanted to be seen as being powerful and to be seen as being almighty. All the while we know that what God is concerned about first and foremost is the heart behind the person and that his heart is tender towards the things of God and the kingdom of God. And so he begins to describe Saul in these ways to begin to make this description or this contrast that exists. I want you to continue to read with me in verse 3. He says, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, they were lost. So Kish says to his son, Saul, take one of the young men with you, arise, and I want you to go look for those donkeys. We skip down to verse 5 and he says, when they came to the land of Zuph, Saul said to his servants who was with him, Come, let us go back. We can't find the donkey, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and rather become anxious about us. Now, this is immediately meant to be sort of striking to us as we read. Most of the heroes, excuse me, in the Old Testament at this point in time, these were shepherds. These were men that worked with their hands, that knew how to cultivate agriculture. They they were hard workers and God-fearing men. And a donkey, if you didn't know, they have certain levels of intelligence. But what we know uh, from archaeology and history is that agriculturally speaking, when a donkey escaped, more often than not, the donkey would return home. And the reason why the donkey would return home is because the donkey was smart enough to know who was watering it and who was feeding it. Donkeys are not elusive creatures, if you didn't know this. They make lots of loud and, and funny and obnoxious noises, and they're not used to just sort of parading around in the woods. A donkey would have been a rather easy animal to be found. And yet here in this moment, this dark and handsome and broad-shouldered man who from the world's standpoint was one of the better looking men that was out there should have been able to find this donkey. But yet in this moment, we are left with this foreshadowing of the failure of Saul's leadership. He's setting it up almost for us to see it and to experience the failure of Saul. Keep reading in verse 6, and he says, But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God. Excuse me, when they they come to the land, anxious about it, verse 6, But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. This is the servant speaking, and all that he says comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And then Saul says to his servant, But if we go, what are we going to bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone. There's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answers in verse 8, Saul again, he says, here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Verse 10, and Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So what the Lord is doing here in the midst of the text is he is, again, trying to paint a picture in order for us to see a little bit into the future about the failure of Saul's leadership. 
You have this man who, who was an attractive man and by every uh, form of the imagination should have been a leader of men, but he couldn't find a donkey and he couldn't track it. And yet here in this moment, as he's exasperated and not knowing what to do, it's the man that's sitting in the second chair, the servant to Saul that says, maybe, just maybe, we should go to this man whom we know the reputation of and we should go ask him where our donkeys are. You have this man that is leading, if you will, as a servant to Saul. He's leading from what we would just call within modern vernacular, he's leading from the second chair in this moment. And he's telling his, his authority, his, his boss, listen, this is the way in which we are to go. And one of the most noteworthy things about that is he is pointing Saul not to just any man, but to the prophet that God has brought. Meaning, let us go to the Lord and seek counsel. This man, he speaks for God. But Saul didn't understand a couple of things. For Saul thought that this man could be bought with a gift. With a shekel of silver or, or with bread. That he, he could be paid in order for him to tell us what it is that we want to hear and what it is that we desire to hear. But we'd be remiss if we miss this moment here for just a moment because I know that some of you today, you find yourself in a situation at, at home or perhaps in your jobs and, and maybe in, even in church where, where perhaps you're not the Saul of the relationship here. That you're the, the man or the woman that sort of sets in the, in the second chair, if you will, and you have an authority that is over you. And can I just encourage you with a couple of things when it comes to service in light of serving in the second chair and not being the man that, or the woman that makes all of the decisions. I think there's a couple of, of subtle reminders here for us. Number one, we notice that this servant at this point doesn't spend time talking about the problems of the missing donkeys. One of the things that we learn from that is that it is quite easy for anyone to diagnose the problem. It is easy for us to linger on the problem and to critique the problem. If we know a little bit of Greek, we can say it in Greek. If we know a little bit of Hebrew, we can talk about it in Hebrew or Aramaic or theological German or French. If we understand, we talk about the problem. But for the one who sits in the second chair and the third chair and even the boss of the situation, anyone can talk about problems. Anyone can criticize. But to be effective in our roles, we have to be, we must be people that talk more about solutions than we do problems. We have to be a people that have an answer to the problem. That we are a people that we spend the majority of our time. I learned this early on in the first church that I pastored. And we had, a, had lots of different things that were going on. And lots of problems and turmoil at different times. And, and we would come into these meetings at times and we would spend hours and hours. And if we had a three-hour meeting, which was some of our record-long meetings, we would spend two and a half hours talking about the problem until we were blue in the face. And this only took place one or two times before we began to circle back and to realize what we were doing, that we needed to spend the bulk of our time not trying to understand the problem even more because we grasped the problem, but what was the answer and the solution and navigating out of the situation when you lead from the second chair, bring solutions to the table, not problems to the table. Number two is this, when you lead from the second chair, lead with your work. Let your work speak for itself. 
You ought to outwork, out-hustle, out-pray, out-persevere. You ought to outwork everybody that's there, even outwork your boss if, if so be it. But you lead and let your work speak for itself. But maybe even more importantly with leading with that work, you better lead with your attitude. You can lead with work and have a bad attitude and it will tarnish your work. You can have a good attitude, but not demonstrate any kind of competence and your work won't speak for itself. You can be the best person in the world, but you must be competent in what you're doing. And the challenge is that I lead with my work and my attitude reflects the excellence of my work. Why? Because have this mind that is in Christ Jesus, the same mind, the same attitude, the same thought. And this servant in the midst of Saul's life, he understood these things and he began to speak about these things in this way. But if we keep reading in the text, we see in verse 11, he says, they went up to the hill to the city and they met a young woman coming out to draw water. And they said to them, is the seer here, the prophet? They answered, he is, but behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him. Before he goes up to the high place to eat, for the people will not eat until he comes since he must bless the sacrifice afterward." Those who are invited will then go eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. Verse 14, so they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out on his way towards the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow this time I'm going to send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people, Israel. You shall save, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now we remember throughout chapter 8 in over nine different instances, we saw this repetition of phrase where the people of God, the Israelites were saying, give us a king, give us a king, give us a king, give us a king so that we can be like everybody else. God, would you give us a king so that we can be like everybody else? And in the Hebrew, it uses this word melech, M-A or M-E-L-E-K, which means king. And I want you to notice what happens if you're reading from the ESV. It doesn't say king in that instant, does it? But rather, what God says to him is, tomorrow I will send you this man and you shall anoint him not to be the king, but rather to just be a little cute prince. That word in the Hebrew can translate as just a, a military person, a palace official. It's a less than term. And so in one way, God answers the, the cry of his people and he, he gives them a ruler to rule over them in the way that he wants. But, but this real subtle exchange takes place in the Hebrew when we examine it closely and your English would render it, I didn't give him a king, but I'm going to give him this cute little prince instead. Answering their prayer and what they thought they wanted, but not perhaps answering it in the way that they intended or rather they hoped for. He says, because their cry has come to me. That phrase towards the end of verse 16 is sort of 16 is peculiar because it, it really just renders this idea that, listen, God hears them. He knows that they need someone in this moment because they're not fully trusting in him. So he's going to give them sort of a piece of that. <coughs> And when Samuel saw Saul in verse 17, the Lord told him, here's the man to whom I spoke to you, who shall restrain my people. Verse 18, then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and he said, tell me where's the house of the seer 
Samuel answered Saul, I am that seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go, and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, don't set your mind on them again, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all of our father's house? Saul answers, I'm not a Benjaminite. Am I not? For the last least of these tribes, and is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? As I began to read this text this week, there were a couple of things that were perhaps more striking than, than others at, at different times. And one of the places that the Lord kept bringing me back to is the idea that we see in verse 16. We see this repetition of phrase again. And I've read this passage over and over again throughout the years. And this was the first time that this was as striking to me in the midst of this. And I don't know if it's because there's a connection, I believe, to Father's Day. Not exegetically, but by way of application. If you notice in verse 16 and 17, there's a phrase that's used over and over and over again that I think speaks to God reminding the Israelites about their identity and whose they are and who owned them and who should be controlling them and whose authority they do submit to. Let me read verse 16 and 17 again and let's see if we notice this turn of phrase again. Tomorrow this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. He shall save my people. From the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. The Lord God begins to speak to Samuel. And he begins to speak to the church through the text today, reminding us that our identity is found not in what culture says, not in what the city says, not in what our neighbors say or our friends say, but it comes rooted in the identity that God gives us as His people in Christ. You see, today's Father's Day, and there are some of you here today that I, I know this because you've told me this, you wake up, and you agonize coming to church on a Father's Day because you grew up in a fatherless home. Your dad might have been there physically, but, but maybe your dad just sort of fits into a couple of different categories. Your dad, perhaps you, you grew up in an abusive home with a father that physically abused you. Maybe he verbally or, or emotionally abused you. And, and can I just say that before the Lord, I, I'm sorry that that has happened to you. And I'm sorry those things were we're done to you. But we oftentimes will look at the lens of our Heavenly Father and we'll look at Him through the context of what kind of relationship we had with our earthly father. And many times when we do that, we can read into the Heavenly Father things that are not meant to be read into. We begin to impose a caricature and an idea on Him because of what our dads did or did not do. And friend, can I tell you, it's a dangerous place to, to be. In the same way that even if your father was, was the most excellent of all fathers and as godly as all fathers, there's not one father who, who is perfect other than the Father in heaven. And so even if your dad was good, we are still meant to find our identity and our, our purpose in our heavenly Father and what He has done and shown Himself to be according to His Word. When it comes to the issue of 
fathers, some of you may or may not have known this, but 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 75% of, of students and teenagers that are in substance abuse centers struggle with that because they had no father in their home. 75%. And sometimes this doesn't just mean that the father was physically absent. It can mean a, a father who, who was uh, the never enough kind of father. This is the father that, that it was never good enough. Like you came home with 98s and 99s and he said, well, you didn't get 100. It was the father that, that you would do well on the sports field or the arena or whatever it was and go, yeah, but you, you didn't catch that ball or you didn't make that pass or you didn't hit that tackle. And what begins to happen with our dads is we begin to, that pushes us in a direction of just like mental health issues where we become the most uptight and anxious people in our life and constantly striving for perfection because we didn't get that from our earthly father. And it pushes us in some places that we don't need to be and that we need to resist against. The never enough. There are three things that I think every child needs to hear. There are three things that I think every son needs to hear from their dad, whether dad is 80 years old and you're 60, whether dad's 60 years old and the son's 40 or wherever that is. Those three things, just very simple this. I love you, I'm proud of you, and I think you're good at the following. I love you. Just reminding and telling our kids over and over and over again, telling our own fathers, if they don't say these things to us, be the ones that affirm and begin to teach and even telling your dad, hey, I, dad, I love you. And, or son, I love you. I'm proud of you. And, and this is why I'm proud of you. And I think you're really good at these things. But here's the caution, parents. What I see moms and dads mistakenly do when it comes to the idea of saying I'm proud of you is that we tend to lean into the performance side of I'm proud. Hey, I think you're, you're really smart and you're really good at, at your studies or you're really good on the baseball field or on the football field. And listen to me, biblical Christian maturity determines how we bring about affirmation. Those things are not bad. But what we're responsible to do as moms and dads, we are meant to cultivate the soil in our kids' hearts so that as they grow up, their hearts become tender and sensitive towards the things of God. And you go, well, that's great, Pastor. Well, how do I do that? Stop aff affirming their performance only and, and channel it with, how about this? You're really good at showing mercy to your mom and dad. You're, you're very good at, at showing mercy when, when people don't deserve mercy. I, you're really good at, at demonstrating compassion towards your sisters or your siblings or your cousins. You're really good at, at showing patience on, on long car rides and, and not getting frustrated. You're really good at, at acts of service and, and helping mom and dad when we don't even have to ask. You, you just do. You're just really good your heart and affirm the heart because what we do in those moments as as seeking to be wise parents what we're doing is we are affirming the spirit of God at work in their life as we see the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit work itself out in them and so it's a combination hey you made good grades I'm, I'm really proud of you you did your best, whatever that is, and pushing them to, to be able to do those things. But the number one goal with, with parenting 
The number one goal, even if you had a bad parent and you want a better relationship with your mom or dad, is what if you said those three things to your mom and dad and the 40-year-old spoke those truths into the 60-year-old or the 60-year-old spoke those truths into the 80 or the 90-year-old. I love you and I'm proud of you and you were good at. That's leading. That's leading from the front to the never enough dad. There's the always on, on edge dad. Uh, this is the dad that you don't know what you're going to get when they come home. Maybe they're temperamental. Every, everybody has a bad day every once in a while, but this is the dad that you just don't know what you're going to get. I read in a history book the other day that after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, we developed this radar and sonar that would then detect any kind of movement around Pearl Harbor for upwards of five to 6,000 miles. We were so motivated after Pearl Harbor, and rightly so, that we developed this radar and sonar. And I think sometimes there are people that are that way around their dads. They just don't ever know what it is they're going to get. And their walls are sort of up in the process. But we have these kinds of dads and the emotionally distant dads that never express emotion. And we have, of course, the absent dad. I think if I were to say one thing to you, no matter where you are today in the context of how you view this idea, you see this idea of understanding our Heavenly Father, it's rooted, I think, first and foremost in what we see in verse 16, you are my people. We are God's. And he is ours. Like he is our treasure and, and our reward. Like, like God is the gospel. He's, he's the gift and, and we get him. And, and he speaks over us in Zephaniah 3 where he says that I sing and exult over you, that I'm proud of you and that I love you and that you're good at these things. This is our God. And so we then tell our kids these things and we speak these things into our spouses, into our friends and, and into our relationships. But friend, can I just warn you one more time ever so gently to don't judge your heavenly father by your earthly one, but rather evaluate your earthly father by your heavenly one. Don't judge God through the lens of what you experience with your dad, good or bad, but rather let how you view your dad here on this earth through the lens of how your heavenly father sees them and and seek peace and restoration in the midst of that. In all of our relationships, we long to see those things take place. And so we seek to know Him. My question for you today as we end, just very simply, is do you know Him? Do you? Do you know that you were created for Him and, and by Him? Do you know that God created the, the good works that he had prepared for you in advance before you were even brought into existence? Do you know that today you can live for him and be on mission with him? Do you know that he died to remove your sins and the stain of sin and the condemnation and the shame that often exists because of sin? The Bible says to turn over our lives to him, to believe and to call upon his name and we shall be saved. But the truth is, I think some of you here today are living as if God has not set you free. 
You're living unknowingly in, in bondage in the midst of sin, just like in so many ways, literally speaking, that group of African Americans in 1865 on June the 18th and the 19th who were already pronounced free and forgiven. Their debt had been paid. They had been set free. And yet they didn't know it until somebody came and said, you are free. Loosen the chains. You have been set free. This morning, I believe some of you here, you need some freedom. You're walking in sin, walking in bondage. And can we say that Christ has died to set the captives free, that you need to be free? Be free of your, of your self-image, of your insecurities. Be free of your fear, of your worry, of, of your doubt. Be free of all of those things and just come to Him and and let Him work in you. You know why God is faithful and believe that God will do a good work is not because I trust you or you trust me, but I trust the God that is working in your heart. He is who I trust. He is who I know will do good things in you because He has prepared those in advance.